Welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about working with communities. I'm Jenna Mathiason, an objects conservative based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservative based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservative based in Cambridgeshire. Right, ladies, today we're talking about working with communities that can have various different meanings. And I would like to explore a few of them. It's very exciting. We've got some good interviews lined up. And uh, basically, we're going to have a ball today. It's going to be great. Out of curiosity, has anyone around the table worked with communities in any sense before? By which I mean, you know, not just museum professionals and putting on an exhibition because that's what you're told to do. Uh, like, no, sorry, that might, but a lot of our a lot of our work is like that, you know. Like the the museum decides to do a thing; it's entirely kind of internal and driven by possibly a project, but usually a curator, and we do the work to go along with it. Like, it's not very often, I think, that we actually collaborate with the people whose objects it might be. No, yeah, you're right. What we were originally going to talk about in the spreadsheet, the magic C word spreadsheet. Um, <laughs> Which you must visible only to us because it's a chaos, not because it's, it's like <laughs> super, not super because it's amazing. Yeah. Is what the I we were coming at this from the angle of uh, ethnographic collections, whether we like or dislike that word, and we were uh, as we have done approached the the um, various various routes that you think um, of when you when you think of that topic. But my I'm, I've worked with ethnographic material before, um, but the main examples I have of working with communities as such more recently has been what you wouldn't consider. So um, disabled groups and LGBT plus groups, because the museum that I work with at the moment is really big on that and um, representation. Yeah, like um, engagement. And engagement, sort of representation, mm-hmm. pe- giving people a voice, yeah. basically. Basically. So um, that's the main thing that I've done. So I'll, I'll hope to talk about that a little bit later. But Christina, you've worked much more recently with ethnographic collections, haven't you? Yes, I have. Although, so I've spent 15 months working with ethnographic collections recently, but my job was preparing those objects for exhibitions. So I didn't actually have a lot of time to get into the context of the objects and certainly not to make connections with the communities from which they came. Having said that, all of the museums I've worked in pretty much over my career have made efforts to reach out to particular sections of the community in a very kind of targeted way. And so in the past, I've organised a touch tour for people with visual impairments, which was something that was particularly dear to my heart because my son is visually impaired. It was kind of an effort really to try and engage parts of the community that wouldn't normally come and have contact with our collections or that might find it difficult to visit the museum. I've also done with my colleague a dementia workshop at a previous museum and that was because the education people there had uh, this was a regular thing that they did together with some of the other museums in the city and they held regular kind of really lovely afternoons actually where people with dementia can come and get involved with looking at the objects making their own artworks the one that my colleague Sophie and I ran was talking about cleaning objects and the people attending the workshop actually had a go at cleaning some things with smoke sponge and soft brush and handling the objects and having a look at how they would do that and then everybody has tea and chats together which is also a really nice aspect of it and then we do a bit more object stuff and that's again a way of making contact with people who don't otherwise visit the museum 
I've also done things with groups of Egyptian visitors when I've been working on ancient Egyptian collections in a museum. I was working in the Egyptian galleries and that's a slightly different kind of issue because there you're talking about people who do come from the community and the country where these objects originally come from but of course they're very historically separated by this point (laughs) yeah so this isn't this isn't a kind of living culture in that sense uh in the same way but there is that kind of connection of national heritage yeah and that's 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 a slightly different thing that's what i'm interested in for this episode is that because we're talking about owning communities then we're, we're essentially we're talking about the the potential for friction between one of the things we're talking about at least is the potential for friction between museum ownership academic ownership and cultural ownership which we cover and we're talking about in a couple of the interviews um, which is really really interesting and I just want to say this is we're we're thinking about this aren't we as distinct from repatriation as a topic because I'm really keen to have an episode about repatriation um, because it's really cropping up everywhere Um, so we will be talking about that in another episode in another series yes but this is particularly fascinating to me because we've got how people can work with museums and how museums can work with people in a really positive way yeah so i haven't done masses of community work like that but something that i have done is well i wouldn't say that my involvement has been particularly big for that because it wasn't but the museum i work for we have a military collection that's a regimental collection and sometimes there's quite a lot of collaboration between the museum and the military community of you know veterans who still want to be involved and want their things to be cared for and you know there's a certain level of involvement there but yeah so i i guess my experience with this has been limited but i'm really interested in it and Mm -hmm. i i love reading stories and listening to stories about community involvement Mm -hmm. and all that stuff so i love this episode it's gonna be great (laughs) i've just remembered another thing that i think i've probably talked about on the podcast before i did an outside contract in my in my job on for veteran standards um so basically it was um the community of veterans working with the museum that held the collection or part of the collection to get them properly conserved framed and um, put on display in the council room in the guild hall in Wrexham. And I didn't anticipate this um, when I started it, but the surviving veterans were are obviously, of course, very, very emotionally invested in these objects. And they actually came to visit to see whilst, see what I was doing. They were really affected by the care that we were taking. And they had the fourth standard with them to use in the visit. And there's a fabulous photograph of it standing in front of the mid-conservation standards with the fourth standard in all of their regalia with their medals and everything. And it was extremely emotional. There were tears. Um, And then subsequently, I've gone to visit and when they were put on display and did a talk about what I did and everyone was you know really emotionally affected by the stories and the general respect that was created by that which is really nice yeah what a good story I just want to sort of talk a bit maybe about what a community is (laughs) oh yeah absolutely how do we define that I mean is it just a group of people who happen to have something in common like they all come from a particular area 
if you're talking about local communities um, or they all have a particular disability or they have dementia, as we've talked about, or they belong to a particular regiment. I mean, what, what counts as a community and where do you draw the line there? And one of the things that came up in some of the interviews we've done, I think, is that, or certainly the interview with Ali and Rachel, which we're going to listen to later in this episode, is that actually communities are made up of individuals as well. And although these individuals have something in common that binds them together as a community, they also may well have quite a lot of differences and that's one of the the things that can be tricky working with the community is kind of making those assumptions based on somebody's identity as a member of a community yeah i mean when actually communities can be quite diverse and disparate absolutely and i think that's that is a really interesting debate to have actually because in theory i'm a member of the lgbt plus community and i am a member of the say european immigrant community Mm -hmm. i don't feel particularly connected to either one uh like i don't feel like i get together with all my gay friends and have a really gay time or and also like i also don't get together with the polish people in the polish shop and go yeah we're so tight like i don't do that either like it's like it's very much on paper i'm part of these communities Mm. and I, i feel maybe a certain affinity but i'm very much kind of my own individual over here so I, I I get mm. what you're saying. It's the the whole term community can be really tricky, and it almost makes an assumption of unity where there isn't one. But I yeah, I guess it's more about looking at slices of audience, maybe. Yeah, I suppose there's also um, there's there's the danger, obviously, um, that we're probably all familiar with of othering. Whenever we're we're talking about communities, we we there's the sort of the idea that they are people who aren't us or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I suppose that just that that comes along with the, the way we behave around that comes along with the respect and the thoughtfulness with which we approach situations. So to to a, to not assume that just because a person is gay, they will be a member of a, a local or national LGBT plus community. And just because a yeah. person is, you know, from a particular country or a particular community within that country that they're particularly interested in being involved in that (laughs) and also it's uh, it can be interesting to make the assumption to um say that oh well a a gay person would be interested in our our museum because of x y and z yeah and it's like oh well no i think it's more about you trying to broaden and include more like in a more effective way mm-hmm. by looking at how how you're engaging with that audience which is i guess why audience might be quite an quite an in word versus yes. community which yeah. is possibly a slightly older word not that it, we're not still using it we are loads but it's almost like community is a word that is slightly more dusty than audience yeah in a well for with a lot of the things we're talking about it's obviously it's not universal but with a lot of the things we're talking about um and we that we do encounter um in museums particularly community is often very self-defined so my museum in particular approaches sort of ready formed communities of people who are activists together i kind of see where you're going with this like it's about in those cases it must be more about a chosen identity as opposed to something that yeah, you're yeah, exactly. maybe born into and stuff like yeah, that exactly but yeah so i suppose that, that all we can do as as museums and conserve and, and as conservation is to work with the self-defined communities because we can't very well like skip out and go hi you're black are you a member oh, of God. this community <laughs> like, oh jesus <laughs> christ can we, oh. you, you're right that that was 
That was a horrendous and really excellent <laughs> yeah, example. Yeah, exactly. You can't. Yeah, that's just the most sort of horrendously othering. Two other things we could do are make sure that we're not actively excluding anybody from our museums. And so doing that kind of audit that makes sure that we're not doing things that would make people uncomfortable or put them off from visiting and so on. And the other thing we can do is make sure that our staffs are as diverse as possible and that they also include people from as many different communities as possible and i think that's one way to get around the kind of othering issue that you were talking about yeah yeah absolutely if if the staffs are diverse then it's more likely to be us than them when you're talking about people from different types of communities yeah, yeah, absolutely. 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 And that's a really good point. But yeah, no, that's a really good point. The representation should also be in the museum workforce. Absolutely. So, and which is, of course, a really dire situation at the moment, which is yeah. why I use the the um, black person example, because it's like 0% or 2% or <laughs> very, very, extremely very low, preciously few. I'm just imagining a situation now where museums have had to cut so many staff that the only person left is in the position of having to represent like every community going. <laughs> Yeah. So we've got, um, Christina, you spoke to a couple of people from the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, didn't you, in Cambridge? Yes. You talk a lot about how this museum in particular has worked with communities, self-defined communities in particular. Yeah. So I spoke to Rachel Hand and Ali Clark, who both work at the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology in Cambridge. And Rachel is a collections manager there and so looks after the anthropology collections in the museum. And Ali is a researcher who's been working on a project to do with Pacific culture and has actually been actively collecting objects that were subsequently accessioned into the museum. And I wanted to talk to them both because um, they've had a lot to do with the source communities from which these objects have come both before and after objects are accessioned, but also because I felt that as conservators, we often just get the kind of end bit of the story. We don't hear what's happened before that. And I thought it would be really nice to hear the whole story from the beginning of how these objects are collected and then what happens to them once they come into the museum before finally we get them as conservators. My name is Rachel Hand. I'm the Collections Manager for Anthropology here at MAA and I look after objects coming into the museum, going out on loan, um, working with researchers from artists to academics to community members to students to people living in Cambridge. Anyone that comes through the collections to see the material in the museum comes and sees me and it's wonderful. Hi, um, I'm Ali Clark. I'm a Newton Trust Research Fellow here at the museum. And I was previously a postdoctoral research associate on the Pacific Presences Project at the museum between 2013 and 2018, which looked at Pacific collections in European museums. And my general focus is objects from Oceania. I'm talking to you both because you've both dealt with objects that have come to the museum from living communities. Ali, am I right in thinking you've actually collected objects for this museum in the field? Yes, yeah, I have. Um, So during the Pacific Presences project, there were a number of us who worked in different countries in the Pacific, and as part of our fieldwork, we also collected objects that either filled the gaps in the museum's collections here or um, were opportunistic 
um, collections and they now form part of the MEA's permanent collections. So what kinds of things were you collecting? Oh goodness, well I went to Kiribati which is in Micronesia and it's kind of north of Fiji for anyone who knows where that is. Right. Um, It's a set of 16 coral atolls in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and I collected a dance outfit when I was there. That was probably one of the most exciting objects for me. Um, So dance plays a really large part of life in the Pacific. And so I was working with a women's collective there to collect a representative outfit that's now back in the collections. Um, What else did I collect? Some mats. Those are obviously things that are used in everyday life. Um, And then things like coconut fibre string, so materials that could be used both for the conservators here at the museum um, and oh. we have exhibitions and in, also in the teaching collection. So objects that people can hold and think about the materials that people are using when they make these objects. And the things you were collecting, were they objects that had already been created and were being used by people or were they things that were made especially for the museum? Um, it was a bit of both, really. Quite a few of the objects in Kiribati... We saw things that we were interested in for the museum, so they filmed kind of holes um, in the museum's collections. The dance outfit, for example, was made entirely for the museum. Other objects, so I collected tools that were used to make a mat that I watched being made, and these were existing tools that the weaver actually was encouraging us to take back to the museum so we could show the whole process of how some of the objects were being made. Okay. Um, and then we also collected things um, collectively as a research project at the Festival of Pacific Arts, and that was literally buying things that people had brought to sell yeah. um, specifically to museums or private collectors. So you were talking about watching things being made. Did you also document those processes as well for the museum, sort of with videos or photographs? or? Yeah, where it was possible, um, we did. So uh, the mat is the great example of that. I sat down with one of the women that was in living in one of the villages where I was staying Um, And she was teaching me and another woman that was her friend how to make these mats. So I sat there with my camera and kind of took about a gazillion photos (laughs) um, and, yeah, had a go at making it as well. And we did it literally from getting the pandanus from the tree to preparing it to actually making the final product. And so those photographs are actually now in the photo collections here in the museum as well. So it's kind of a complementary collection to the objects. What was that like for you as a researcher? How did that affect your understanding of these objects actually having been involved in making one. I think it gives you a greater appreciation for the time and effort that goes into the objects and how complicated they are. But also, I've always had an interest in making textiles anyway, so mm-hmm. it's just I really like learning new skills. How did you get all these things home? <laughs> <laughs> that was a, yeah, that was a fun, um, exciting thing. Uh, we went to supermarkets and got right. uh, boxes because there's obviously nowhere you can make crates. Yeah, um, so we, had to, we were thinking like museum professionals but in an island um, with not that many resources we bought tissue paper which by no means was um, (laughs) conservation grade tissue paper (laughs) we were just thinking packing materials what can we use and then you take it to the DHL guy and you have to get them fumigated by the government and you get a certificate so you go to a little office with all your things they do that you pay them three dollars they give you a certificate and then you post it all off to the UK and just hope that it arrives um, and thankfully it did, and I had Rachel on the other end to receive it, so I'd send her an email and be like, oh, I've just sent this massive box, watch out for it. We're not sure how long it's going to take. I think usually, actually, it wasn't too bad. I think it took about six weeks in the end. Obviously, it's very expensive to do DHL. It's something like $300, which is like £200 or something just to send a box. So you have to think about these things when you're doing the costing before you go out there. So Rachel 
What did you think when this box arrived from Kiribati? And- well, it's wonderful. It's like opening your Christmas present. <laughs> um, you never know what state the boxes are going to come back in because I've had materials sent from the field in metal crates. I've had mats that are rolled up and the, the lime powder for, from the objects themselves has been falling out from the seams. They've been bundled, wrapped around with tape. So you really don't actually know what condition the objects are going to come out in because you know it's really difficult to pack things in the field. Ali said, you've got problems with tissue we've had things that have been sent back 10-15 years ago that had absolutely no packing they were packed by the person that shipped them who put a few bits rolled up newspaper in which didn't help so we've had to reconstruct objects before when they arrived right (laughs) um, which is always problematic but it was wonderful so these lovely wonderful objects are coming but because they've been six weeks in transit and obviously it's so humid in Kiribati and also, because it's been drying out in transit or you've had things bundled wrapped, you then have to try and form a way to relax them so you can see how, how they're going to be packed here in situ. And everything has already changed from how it was packed and used back in Kiribati. So you have this lovely sort of dance skirt and the belt, and then you have to flatten the belt out again because it's been rolled up and it's become set in, in those yeah. rolls. So it's like laying it out and sort of weight, weighing it down gently and sort of letting it um, relearn its new shape. So it's almost like you wrap it up, you fold it in tissue and you put it to bed. Yes. <laughs> so somewhere across the Pacific, mm. it, it turns from being a kind of everyday object into being a museum object. Yeah. And, and you it's treat that it completely differently. It's that moment of accessioning. Yeah. When it almost enters this almost inviolate stasis, that it's entered the museum, you now have to wear gloves, you can't put it on, you can't wear it, you can't shake it, you can't hear it, you can't shimmy with it, you can't hear it move. <laughs> and sometimes you just, you take these wonderful objects that have been very recently collected out and you think, I really want to wear them. And you, when it comes to the museum, you, it will never be worn again. And it loses something, I think. And it's only when we have people from the places that produce these, these so-called source or originating communities that really reactivate and sort of bring these objects back to life. And I think that is the best part of the work that we do. So what kind of engagement do you have between people from those communities and the objects that are now in the museum? Well, it, it really varies, I think. So I started working here in the museum as on the collections in 2006 and one of the first groups I worked with was a group of Māori uh, visitors called Te Hoiti, who were from Gisborne Bay area, and we have two Māori hoi, two, two wooden paddles, which we think were collected out of this really long canoe. And we know the day and date we think these paddles were collected. There's about, I think, 12, 13 paddles around the world from this one, one canoe, and we have two here. And my first sort of experience of working with the people from where objects had come from was... Toyhoti and Hera took this paddle in her hand. She stood in the workroom, and unlike people, um, sort of, sort of academic researchers that I'd worked with who wear their gloves and very carefully look over it and support the object at, uh, at centre of gravity and turn it over over a table and very carefully look at it. And she picked it up because at this point she wasn't wearing gloves because the Maori to them, the objects are telma, so ancestral treasures, these objects are alive, they're connected to them. She picked up her hand and she proceeded to paddle it. And I go, oh, mind the wall, mind the floor, mind the wall. And I, I don't know what my face was, but <laughs> let's just say she laughed like a drain at me and did it even more. So instead of just looking at it, as yeah. you said, she, she wanted she, to use it. She wanted to feel how it was weighted, yeah. how it would be paddled. And that was that first introduction to how members of source communities work with objects. Yeah. 
to them. It's part of the history, they're part of the heritage, and it's something to be used. It's something that had a purpose. It doesn't just lie in a display case, it doesn't lie in a box. It's waiting to be worked with and reactivated. And, it, and I guess that's the, the important yeah. thing of what we're here to facilitate, understanding how the collections are used and what they would have been used for. And yeah. um, we've seen people come in and play Tahitian flutes or um, some of the Maori nose yeah. flutes or the trumpets. And we're always learning. Because yeah. you can read about it, how it was used in a book or bits and pieces and someone can tell you, but it's only when really you have this sort of very much one-to-one interaction. Mm. It's such a difference. Because hearing, like you were saying, Tahi playing the Tahitian nose flutes, 18th century, yeah, yeah. 1771, first cook first voyage to the Pacific, so some of the very early encounters between islanders and Europeans. And Tahi was playing this wonderful nose flute. And the sound it makes, it's just so evocative. And you just want to listen and sway. It's beautiful. And that's yeah. something that you just can't get from looking at an object, no, no, of course, where it's a musical instrument. Yeah. Is. Yeah. There's a whole aspect of it that's kind yeah. of missing if, yeah. if it's not used like that. So where would you draw the line with things in the collection? I've heard a curator say, and I don't know if I completely agree with this, that, well, if an object breaks, stick it back together. I think it's working out between yourself and the people involved and also looking at the fragility of the object as to what can be possible and what is going to be more beneficial. Is it going to cause damage to the object or damage to the individual involved? A lot of our objects have been treated with pesticides over time. <laughs> so playing these musical instruments where you have your mouth on the object, you are inhaling and you're breathing in and out to, to play them, you have to do a risk assessment and say, well, these are the chemicals that could have been used. Yeah. But then there's also other things that if you facilitate an interaction with an object, I mean, we had a group of Blackfoot visitors, people from North America, from Montana and Alberta, then we have a quite a lovely relatively large collection which includes sort of sacred objects uh, regalia sort of medicine bundles to clothing to personal ornaments and one of the researchers with us that had worked at the university of aberdeen she'd been working with the community for a long period of time she'd done her lot of researches her phd was based on them but it was very much a close personal relationship as well so she had this incredible personal relationship with the group and that makes a difference because I was meeting them for the first time, so was the curator Anita as well. At first. And I think it was the second day, the group said to us, we would like Charlie, this young 18-year-old boy who was the youngest member of the group, we'd like Charlie to wear one of the shirts. And we went, hmm, okay. So we looked at each other and we thought about it and we had a quick discussion at the side. And being able to facilitate Charlie to enable him to wear one of these shirts Depending what shirt was selected could impact on the entire relationship. So Anita and I put our heads together and luckily we knew the collections quite well. So we selected a shirt made of deerskin that was collected in the 1930s. It's a relatively flexible one. It's new-ish. It had very solid beadwork attached. It wasn't quill work. Everything was stable. And we said, okay, we had this one. Please make sure you keep something underneath. We don't want too much of the material to be in contact with your skin. These are the vulnerable points with the seams and the beadwork. And his elders, his grandfather, helped him get dressed. And he wore this shirt. And my God, it hit you right in the chest. (laughs) Because his sense of pride, he was completely empowered. It was amazing. He just stood up straight. And it's like, I'm wearing this shirt. This is what I'm doing. And it changed the whole dynamic of the visit. 
And the end of this was that we learned huge amounts of information on our objects. We developed wonderful new relationships, long-term relationships. And I was honoured with a Blackfoot name. So it really changed the whole dynamic of that visit. It's not something you could do with every object and it's not something you could do with every group. But I think knowing where to draw the line and where to say it will make a big difference is one of the amazing things that we're able to do. So effectively, you're doing a cost-benefit analysis. You're saying, what are the costs to the collection of facilitating Mm -hmm. this? But also, what are the benefits both to your museum and to the Mm -hmm. other people involved? Yeah, definitely. Have there been requests that you've not been Um, willing or able to facilitate? I don't think so. There's been joking requests to try various headdresses on, mm-hmm. but I don't, it's not something that they're in a stable enough condition to do so, and it's not been a, a formal sort of request. So conservation yeah. concerns would yes. still yes. dictate whether Definitely. or not yeah. you said. Yeah. I think there's also been some Turinga, which are Australian bororos or sacred stones or wooden boards. Mm. And that's a gender issue, because sometimes it's not appropriate for women or uninitiated men to see them and then people have requested it not knowing what it is if, if they're not used to researching that sort of material they then understand once you explain the reasons why so how do you deal with that sort of thing from a collections management point of view i assume you don't have many initiated men on the staff mm, that's, it's, a, it's a tricky one and actually one of the first things i had to do on my first month here when i arrived i had a box of australian tringa which i had to go through and repack and I was very uncomfortable. I'd never worked with this type of material before. I knew that communities differ in Australia as to what the attitudes are to it. So originally it was uninitiated men, women and children shouldn't see these objects. Here's me as a white woman. I'd never been to Australia. I had absolutely no connections to communities there. I didn't know what to do. However, I was very fortunate. I had a lovely Australian male researcher over, a um, white, white Australian male, but it was the best I could do. I actually asked him to repack them. <laughs> yeah. But it very much varies on the individual case. So if people want to see the material, um, I ask, am I okay to access it? Would you like me to get a male member of staff to work with you? So is the museum's attitude to respect what the people from the communities involved would want? As much as possible, yeah, that we can make happen in a way that is respectful. You can talk about a community, but within that you're going to have so many different varieties of opinion Mm. that you try and it's often varied and depends who you speak to as to how things are going to pan out. I'm wondering how you feel this conflicts potentially with the museum's other purpose. If you're going to collect these things, then do you not have a duty to make them accessible to researchers and visitors? Yeah, I think so. I don't think it impacts negatively. Because I think once you, if someone, for example, with a shrunken head say, I want to see this, if you can explain your reasons why, and it's very much on a case-by-case basis, it's very much to do with respect and honouring the reasons why... And I think most people are fine with that. And I don't think it limits and restricts access generally. It's very specific individual cases that applies to. But also that it's something that I think we're, we're obligated to do. It's my responsibility to behave in these ways because huge amounts of colonial imperial history have left people with no choices. And I think it's our responsibility to, to react in a positive way to this and build on these relationships. But it is the long-term relationships that 
feed you the information that help you work in ways that are respectful to the communities you're working with. Unless you have those long-term relationships, it can be very difficult. You cannot work with communities and expect an instant response. The information and knowledge that you will gain from individuals and the group changes over time. They'd be much more willing to share and be open and discuss things and debate more with you rather than telling you what they think you want to hear. For example, our Torres Strait collections, we've worked with individuals and artists over 20-odd years. An artist, Alec Tapote, he was a young art student when Anita, the curator, first met him. We have some of his artworks from his, his sort of finishing show in the museum. And he's now an internationally renowned artist, And but he still visits the museum. He has a very close personal relationship with Anita. And because of the work he's done with the museum and the numerous visits he's made, he promised the, the masks that several years ago, I think it was about five years ago now when he, when he came, that he would return, he would dance for them. And he came back with a dance troupe, the Zugabal Dancers, and we closed the museum now. We put all the turtle shell masks from the behind the scenes of the store on display, and Alec and the dancers, they danced for the mask in the gallery. And the only non-Torres Strait Islander there was Anita, and she was there by invitation. Mm-hmm. And then we reopened the museum in the evening, and we had a public event. And the dancers danced again for the public. And at the end of that, Laurie took his headdress off his diary, which is very similar to the historic and contemporary diary we have on display, took it off his head and handed it to, to Anita as a symbol of this long-term relationship that he and the group have had with her. And it's that long-term things that make what we do possible. But I think that, yeah, what's important for people work, working on research projects like myself is making sure that those relationships are not just with individuals but are with the museum collectively because we are and most museum workers are quite transient yeah you don't get permanent jobs anymore and so actually you have to establish those relationships with the museum but it is individuals that make those relationships work also what's very important is to remember when we have visitors from overseas is that actually it activates relationships with people that are living here. So mm-hmm. we have a very, the museum has a very long-term relationship with Natty Ranana, the London Maori Society, and now the Kiribati Diaspora in the UK. And these relationships are also very important um, for the collections as well. Yeah. yeah. So Ali, when you were collecting things for the museum, were there any conditions or requests that accompanied the objects you were collecting? Or were the people who you got them from happy to say, actually, just do what you want with them for the majority of the objects people generally yeah said happy for them to be in the museum we try and record how people might like them to be spoken about or if they're going to be exhibited how they want to be interpreted and consider that in the interpretation if they do go on display but one of the objects actually that we commissioned recently was a new suit of Kiribati armor mm-hmm. And one of the conditions for the museum accessioning that was that if anybody from Kiribati wants to come and try it on, that they can. Because the new suit of armour was tried on in New Zealand, where it was made by various members of the community, to give people a sense of what these historic objects would have felt like to kind of wear and to use. And they wanted that to really to be able to continue. And so that is something that we've got written into the object record. When you were... talking to people about why you wanted to buy these things and what you were going to do with them. What was the reaction? <laughs> I'm just thinking, if, if, if somebody came up to me yeah. and said, can I buy your skirt? Yeah. <laughs> I want to go and put it on display somewhere. I think I would 
find it hard not to feel objectified yeah. in some mm-hmm. kind of yeah, way. Definitely. Um, and I'm just wondering <laughs> whether you got any kind of reaction or whether people were just happy that you were taking an interest. Um, one of the purposes of going out there was we'd created these community books, which were small, lightweight, floppy books of lots of photographs of objects from European museums that were from these islands. So part of the collecting of objects was kind of where we were given things, where people were were bringing out objects and saying, this is like what's in the book that you're showing me. Here's something that I've made, my family's made, that we still make. We would like a contemporary example to be in the museum to show that these are not things of the past, but these are still present in everyday life now. I think for the things that we commissioned, so things like the dance outfit, because these are things that are so present in everyday life, it didn't seem perhaps so strange to people that the museum wanted to have one to be able to represent Kiribati fully if it was going to do an exhibition about that area. I think we don't tend to, as much as as often used to happen, say, oh, this girl's got a lovely skirt. May I buy your skirt, my yes. type thing? <laughs> no, because I think that does objectify completely the, the individuals involved. And it changes the dynamic of that relationship between the collector and the donor. I think a lot of our the contemporary material, especially today, like Ali said, a lot of it is commissioned. If you're buying things in markets, they're often made for display in someone's home, to be worn, and it's very much, they are commodities themselves. Mm. So it's rather than a very much a personal, intrinsic, valuable heirloom, where some are still passed on. I mean, my colleague Heather, she was working in Papua New Guinea, she was given gifts, and I'm sure and, yeah. and Ali, Ali was as well. She's been given gifts by her host. I want you to have this. This was like my mother's, this was my sister's. This is mine. And I want it to be in a museum, as Ali said, to bring things up to date. The museum collection, by its very nature, is very old material, is sort of outdated, and people say, well, actually, we don't use those anymore. We use these. It's like, show my culture in a proper light. This, this is what we're doing today. And I think that does change things and how they're collected. But that also changes how we can care for it. I mean, Julie Adams, our colleague who's now at the British Museum, she collected a flag from New Caledonia, which, to be honest, is a bit of a bit of a nightmare. It is a collections manager's idea of horror. It's a wonderful flag. It's the New Caledonian national flag, but it's folded up. It's in cellophane, and this is how these objects are passed down through the family, and they're gifted in the cellophane wrapper. Mm-hmm. We don't take them out of the cellophane wrapper, so we've accessioned it. I've never taken it out of the bag. I don't know how big this object is. It gives me the heebie-jeebies that I can't open this and, and do what I would see as proper collections management. But because of the way it's collected, this is not how they're used. Mm-hmm. So it's that sort of line that I don't feel I can cross. Ali, did you find that people had ideas about what they thought you ought to be collecting for the museum that were different from what you had actually gone out there intending to? Um, yes, I got a lot more jewellery than I was expecting. <laughs> um, but what was interesting as well was because I was there during the time of the Pacific Arts Festival, part of what countries do when they go to this is each country has a stall um, in this kind of international Pacific market. All the makers on the islands produce goods for sale at the Pacific Arts Festival. And the Culture Centre in Kiribati had asked the local women to make what they saw as authentic Kiribati earrings. 
And actually, what they were making were things that weren't what people were wearing now. They were making what they thought people for museums might want to buy. So <laughs> actually, what was more interesting to me was the metal earrings that people were wearing that mm-hmm. were engagement earrings. So they give people engagement earrings instead of engagement rings. But the cultural centre didn't want people to sell those or to talk about those. They wanted these kind of shell earrings using local natural resources. So it, then you get kind of what a cultural centre thinks that a, a European museum should have versus what local people think that the museum should have. And it's that kind of interesting dynamic and you have to kind of navigate yeah. those two expectations. Which earrings did you buy? I didn't buy any. <laughs> I got gifted a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so we have some of the shell earrings in the collection here. And at some point we have um, also, hopefully, we should be getting some metal earrings. So these um, some of the engagement earrings? Yeah, some of the engagement earrings. Wonderful. They're in the post somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> somewhere in the Pacific. But it, I guess it's trying to ensure that you have that representation across the board somehow. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the most important things for me is that it's trying mm-hmm. to incorporate what people would like, people not from those areas, to mm-hmm. understand about their culture. And a lot of it is very politically motivated. By buying material from one group or individual, you're sort of favouring them and showing that they're this authentic owner of heritage. So it's sometimes very difficult as to what information you can share and also whether or not should you be collecting from, from, from that group as well, because then you're reinforcing this sort of power dynamic. It's an intriguing one, and I don't think there's a right or right answer. Mm, so. It's never dull. <laughs> So, Rachel Hand and Ali Clark, thank you very much for talking to The C Word today. Thank Thank you. you. Oh, I absolutely love the amount of facilitation that goes on at that museum. Like, how brilliant is that? I hadn't thought really about the kind of active collection of um, contemporary material that must and does go Mm. on in museums. I've mainly, because I suppose with my previous work at the Pitt Rivers, only really thought about it in terms of historically collected and working with communities now as a sort of aftermath of that collecting. Which which is also valid. That's also really good. Yeah. Uh, but obviously this is like taking it to the next level really with like the very active engagement and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's brilliant. And it makes you think about the difference, the potential difference of how people are behaving now versus of how people were behaving 300 years ago. Yeah. And that's just, that's just so interesting. Yeah. yeah. It also reminds me that when when, when we worked uh, at that museum uh, for a bit, yeah. then they put on a Buddhist exhibition, Before. which was an amazing exhibition. And I really loved how closely they worked with the current religious community of Buddhists in Cambridge at the time. Like mm-hmm. there was a lot of beautiful discussions going on about how to best look after the objects, how to best display them, how it could facilitate them them coming in and, you know, getting getting so- something out of it for, for them and for their, you know, spiritual needs. And then, I mean, I love having these conversations that could literally only happen in that kind of space where it's yeah. like, can we have incense in the... Ge- well, that's set off the fire alarm. Is incense okay? <laughs> is incense okay for the other objects? What, what can we do to make sure mm-hmm. incense is allowed? And I just, like, I loved having those kinds of that overhearing even those conversations like it was just it just felt like it's what a museum is meant to do like it was just really thinking outside the box and it's not all stuff in glass cases far away and i know it was just 
really refreshing. It was just a, a nice environment yeah. to work in, you know? I think one of the things that really struck me talking to Ali is how consciously different they're trying to make that relationship. Yeah. Um, because Fat Museum does have no no shortage of objects that were collected a long time ago mm. by anthropologists and ethnographers working in the field 100 years ago, even longer. And those sorts of things were sometimes collected respectfully and conscientiously and sometimes less so the the kind of relationship that you have between those objects and the current living communities is quite different i think from the sorts of relationships that those communities would have with the objects that ali's been collecting because they've been collected in very different sorts of circumstances and the people that she's acquiring them from have been a lot more involved in their selection and in recording the kind of information that's important about them and so it has a very different kind of feel i think often when museums do engagement with stuff that's been collected longer ago there's a more kind of apologetic feel about it (laughs) yeah well we have your stuff and I'm really sorry it wasn't my fault it came here a hundred years ago I'm so sorry please don't demand it back (laughs) how can we make it up to you how can we let you have access to it yeah yeah exactly and I I think that's quite different one of the things related to that that I found really really interesting is and it's obvious when you think about it but the difference we're so used to as conservatives so used to thinking no you're not touching that obviously you're not touching that um (laughs) but the fact that it makes such a difference who is doing the touching and Mm. what is being done to it and what you're getting out of that both as the community and as the museum that's what I found really interesting as a as a cost benefit as as you discussed but not Mm. just thinking about the cost but the benefit yeah I, I love thinking about these issues and I think when we do do an episode about touch later on these sorts of issues will come up because I think it's a lot of it's to do with authority and power and who we're granting the authority to to touch these objects because you're saying as conservators we used to saying to people don't touch but actually that's what we do as conservators we are touching this stuff all the time and so we're essentially saying yeah it's okay for us to touch this stuff but not you (laughs) and that's to do with the kind of authority we have as conservators in the museum rachel said something about the museum consciously giving up some of its power to other people when it lets people engage with objects in that very kind of direct way and I think that's that's a really striking point that as museums, we're used to having all the power on our side and saying, look, these are our things we can control who has access yeah. to them. Mm. We can control who touches them. And actually to have meaningful engagement of the sort that Rachel was describing requires the museum to give up some of that power voluntarily. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think as conservators, we're always going to think about why we're saying people can't touch things because obviously we know it's not just because we're grumpy we know it's because we're we're we want to keep (laughs) the object as it was as much as possible and not make any additions or cause any damage um since its acquisition or since its storage or its manufacturer use or whatever um as possible but then of course there's something else that we just heard um rachel discuss is the use of objects and um Mm. if that is that you know objects connected with living communities that are still connected with them they are still alive they are still used and if that's the case then we've got to try and think about how to reconcile that with ourselves and say all right maybe it can be not changed or altered but maybe it can be subjected to things that we that could cause a change 
I think when she described that example of somebody playing a flute yes. from the 1770s that was from one of Captain Cook's voyages, this sort of immensely fragile and old and culturally significant object. I mean, significant for us as well as for the communities involved, the source communities. And she described somebody playing it. And I found it really hard not to have that kind of, oh my God, kind of reaction. That I, <laughs> I had that reaction, but because I was thinking about the pest sides um, so <laughs> I, I think obviously I'm the massive like um, hypochondriac or, or whatever They're just the idea of someone <laughs> breathing huffing and puffing through something with pesticides all over it potentially yeah. I just I don't I feel like I would yeah I would have to try really hard not to beg someone like please what are you getting out of this that isn't like just a lung full of arsenic yeah. can we just not please yeah. oh god I love that I also went down the, the route of <laughs> I worry so much more about the person than the thing Exactly. Oh God! When I write my uh, museum murder mystery story, it's going yes. to involve somebody <laughs> do it, being do killed it. by a pesticide-laden flute. <laughs> oh my God! You need to do that. Like in contemporary conservation, we all bang on about how we actually look after the value of an object and not the object in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, because that's where we're trying to shift this the, the, the entire thought structure of conservation to be about the value and not about the molecules that make it up. But it does raise these interesting questions about what is the museum value and what is the the people value who wish yeah. to wish to use the object or touch the object or engage with the object. What what are the important bits? And there's a lot of conversations to be had there. And I think those are the really fascinating bits of working in a museum where you can have those conversations and hopefully you can relinquish some power so that you can see that maybe what we find valuable is not the only value of that object that we have to expand what is valuable and how we're looking at that and even how we're recording it. So what we just heard there was very much the museum seeking the community or communicating with the community, community visits and therein the relationship lies. Next, we've got a lovely example of when the community works with the museum or archaeological group in order to get what they need. So my name is Frances Lukasik, and I'm a conservator specializing in the conservation of archaeological objects. So uh, I, I work for the state of Maryland at the Maryland Archaeological Conservation Laboratory. Uh, I'm going to say MacLab for short. <laughs> so the lab serves as the official repository for the state's archaeological collections, uh, but the conservation lab conserves not only the state collections it holds, but we also undertake conservation work for other nonprofit institutions, cultural resource management firms, government agencies, historical societies, and you know museums throughout the United States that don't have uh, conservation expertise. Uh, and some of my previous conservation experiences experience uh, includes uh, working in Greece at the American School of Classical Studies at Athens at the ancient Agora excavation. And I've spent some time at the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian Cultural Resource Center in their conservation lab and a project called the Lewis Maritime Archaeology Project in Delaware. 
So I remember that last year you were involved in a project. Could you tell me a little bit about it? Oh, sure. Yeah. So last year, I was fortunate to be able to take six weeks away from my work at the Mac Lab from July to August and go to the uh, Nunalik Archaeological Excavation, which is uh, located in southwest Alaska near the Yupik village of Quinnahawk, uh, which is in the Yukon Kuskokwim Delta along the Bering Sea. So Nunalik means uh, old village in the Yupik language, and it's a pre-contact site consisting of uh, archaeologists identified as two sod houses that uh, one is 400 years old and one is 500 years old. So quite an incredible project. And the preservation of the organic artifacts that come out of this site is the most amazing I have ever seen. So how did this project begin and how did you get involved? So it actually began several years ago in, I think, around 2009. And it's a a partnership between the village corporation that's uh, in in Quinnahawk and it's called Kinirtuk and the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. And so at the time, uh, the corporation reached out to uh, archaeologist Dr. Rick Connect, who worked in uh, Alaska for many years before he uh, moved on to Aberdeen to teach at the university. Uh, The community uh, noticed artifacts eroding out of the tundra. And so uh, at a site that was threatened, is threatened by coastal erosion, the community was seeing their cultural heritage being literally uh, swept away into the sea. And so they made the decision, yeah, to partner with Dr. Connect and the University of Aberdeen to excavate the site and save what was still there. So the project is you know, has been in a race with the unrelenting changes in the environment um, to excavate and retrieve the artifacts. Uh, They are on the front line of climate change because the permafrost is thawing. All those organic artifacts that were once well-preserved in that frozen environment are now at risk of deterioration, you know, at a very fast pace. Yeah. So the university and the uh, community have been doing this work for many years I learned about the project actually through an article that appeared in National Geographic. Oh. <laughs> and so I wanted to learn more because, I, you know, when you see images of, you know, complete wooden masks and bent wood vessels and, you know, exquisitely carved ivory, little ivory artifacts, it, it, it really captured my interest. And also the uh, strong partnership that seemed to be present between the archaeologists and researcher, researchers in the local community. So there was you know, a lot of consultation and discussion between the two parties involved. Yeah, so I'd also been interested in sort of that community and consultations with the you know, stakeholders since my time at, uh, I spent at the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. So, yeah, of course. So I wound up reaching out to the project director. I found his information uh, through the University of Aberdeen and, and asked, you know, so do you, would you have a need for a conservator, uh, an on-site conservator for your upcoming uh, excavation season? And, and he quickly replied, yes. And so that's... <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. What an opportunity. Oh, indeed. It, it, it really reminded me that, well, you, you don't know what will happen unless you ask. And and, and then, uh, so, you know, several months later, I find myself uh, boarding a plane and finding my way to um, to southwest Alaska, where you have to get to Anchorage, and then you have to find a smaller plane that will then get you to the village, because you know, in many areas of Alaska, the only access 
to towns or villages is by plane or or sometimes by boat. <laughs> so it was quite quite an extraordinary experience. <laughs> yeah, sounds it. I was there to oversee kind of general lab activities, mm -hmm. such as uh, artifact cleaning, also to do triage uh, where needed, and and when possible to do some conservation uh, treatments there on site. So this project is kind of still going on, I'm guessing, because that won't be the last excavation season, will it? Uh, that's that's correct, right? So there are there are plans for more work this coming summer. I'm not sure what what form that's going to take, but I know uh, that they've had uh, uh, researchers, and I think the project director. Is, is currently there. So there are people that still going to the village to study, study the artifacts, the collection, and also to uh, keep conservation efforts uh, going. So what happens with the artifacts once they're excavated and looked after? Do, are they remaining within the community or are they sent somewhere else? You know, in previous years, most of the artifacts had been shipped to Aberdeen to to get conservation treatment. All of those artifacts came back last year during the during the time I was there. Um, oh, that's amazing! Because it culminated in the official opening of their Nulanuk uh, Cultural and Archaeology Center, where all, all the artifacts are being uh, housed. I think it is quite incredible that the collection is staying within the community where where it will, I believe, have more value because the community will be there uh, where they can still learn from, you know, their cultural heritage. They can study the artifacts and see how they're made because also one of the great things I experienced uh, during that time was speaking with some of the elders and other individuals that were looking very closely at, at the artifacts as they were excavated mm. and then um, would then go and try to replicate that artifact. Uh, one in particular is a uh, uh, an elder called John, uh, John Smith who carves uh, some of the most, you know, just really beautiful objects out of a, a walrus tusk ivory. So it's like experimental archaeology in practice, but with the source community, uh, keeping, right, keeping crafts alive. That's so beautiful. Exactly. And because like, well, so many indigenous communities, you know, when at the time of contact uh, with, uh, I think, particularly missionaries in that part of Alaska, uh, they lost uh, the knowledge for creating um, certain types of, of objects mm. or, or working with particular materials. And so, you know, it was really interesting to see there's people interested in, you know, community members that were interested in, oh, looking at the mats woven out of grass. Yeah. Or others that were really interested in looking at the mask because they were getting involved into wood carving. Oh, that's fantastic. That's the kind of community engagement you want. Like people really embracing that rediscovery. That's so beautiful. I love that. Oh, yeah. It, it's just a truly fantastic to be to be there to see that type of engagement because oh, it just you, you can't replicate that anywhere else. It's such a unique, yeah. you know, unique site with right next to the uh, community that really wants to uh, discover all they can about their own cultural heritage. And this site is allowing them to reconstruct their past. They do have, of course, stories that have been passed down mm. among the elders and community members. And I think yet another amazing thing to witness was as uh, the oral histories or stories being reflected in the archaeological excavation and the type of artifacts they're being found. Yeah, it's like giving a tangible aspect of the oral history. That's amazing. 
How much involvement did you have with the community? Yeah, for the time that I was there, uh, I I was in the the laboratory or the uh, Nunavik uh, center that they had established, uh, which also was serving as the as the lab. Mm-hmm. So from time to time, uh, we'd get visits from the community members, such as the uh, the ivory carver who wanted to come in and look at yeah. what was just found a bit closer, so that he could he could study and figure out like, oh, how can I how can I do that? So yeah, it was not uncommon for that to happen, and and I know that there were uh, of course community members that would also visit the excavation. Do you feel like there were compromises? Well, I think compromises. I had to make were not necessarily based on the needs of the community, but more related to the geographic remoteness of the site. Say, uh, for example, getting certain supplies. <laughs> so I think the compromises I made were more in finding a suitable alternative that was there, <laughs> suitable yeah. material I could use that was there. Yeah, another example would be um, when you have, I would say, a lot of wet wooden artifacts from different contexts, and you're trying to maximize the number of containers you have and the quantity of polyethylene glycol that you have yeah. for stabilizing the wet wood. Um, I realized I, you know, one way to do this would be to have like a screen type material or netting that you could bundle up wood from one context. Oh yeah, or, yeah. Or wood from- to keep them separate, but but could all still be put into one container. <laughs> so the village does have a small hardware store that happened to have mosquito netting. <laughs> oh, nice. Good hack. <laughs> yeah, so, so thankfully that worked really well for uh, being able to wrap wood from different contexts and yet keep several contexts separate, but they could all be placed in one container with the uh, peg. Oh, I, I love when we have to MacGyver things. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes, and I feel like the people of, of Quinnahawk and the archaeologists that work on, that have worked on the project have become our experts at MacGyvering things. <laughs> it's just, I was quite in awe of their, of their just their creative skills. <laughs> uh, what are you most proud of when it comes to this project? Yes, in general, I would say I'm just very proud I was able to be a part of that project at such a, a special time for them to witness the opening of the cultural center, which brought in, um, which also coincided with uh, bringing in uh, other indigenous artists to teach whoever was, you know, any of the community members interested in, say, mass making or learning how to make bent wood vessels or learning how to make ulaks, which is uh, the traditional a traditional knife that that has been used for centuries, basically, because you could see, oh, there are so many beautiful ulak found at the site. Oh, amazing. Uh, and then to see to see that skill being taught and ulaks being created now is, is just, you know, that is really. Uh, quite, That's such a beautiful quite, continuation, isn't it? It, it really is. I, because like I said, it was, was definitely a once in a lifetime experience. Yeah, because it's not like it was a regular job in that sense. Because you you were living in the community at the time. Like this, this was a very immersive experience for you, wasn't it? That that's a great way to describe it. Is immersive because that that perfectly describes the entire time. Getting to know you know some of the villagers or community members there was fantastic, and working with Doctor Connect and of course all of the other archaeologists that were part of the project uh, was just uh, an incredible, 
incredible time. Do you have any advice for conservatives out there who would like to work with communities like this? I would say that even if it is out of your comfort zone, is is to to if you can, if you have an opportunity to be a part of a project with community involvement, is to is to definitely do it. Take the leap. <laughs> I had never been to Alaska. Had never been to a place where you had to where there were where you just couldn't take a train, a bus, or your car to get there. You, yeah. you had the logistics may be daunting, but uh, I've I found it to be one of the most rewarding experiences I've, I've had. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that with us, Francis. Oh well, thank you uh, for the opportunity to talk about the uh, Nunalak project. I just want to say, firstly, I have so much love for Francis for doing this. Good for her stepping out of a comfort zone in order to to work with this. Yeah, I mean, I think there are loads of good points from this. First of all, never be afraid to ask the question. If you see a project you want to be involved with, there might be room Mm. for you. Also, I thought it was really great that even though some of the objects were taken very far away to be treated, because it wasn't feasible to do so, nearby, the fact that the artifacts are still returning and that the community... Are the people looking after them? Beautiful, wonderful mm-hmm. thing. And also, oh my God, climate change. I it makes know. my insides hurt. I know. That was my point. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what struck me. Yeah. So that my, my question uh, to that is, is seeing their cultural heritage, their material culture under threat, is that changing how they feel about their own history and their own material history? That's something that I, I don't know. Obviously, we can't answer that now. But that is a really interesting factor about... Um, the threat of loss. The threat of loss and the, the, the learning about something, becoming aware of something as it's being damaged, as it's being lost, is something really, you know, really interesting. I also feel there's this really sick irony in the fact that often the areas that are most affected by climate change are the areas that are not contributing to the I causes. Know. And so it's it's us, it's us in the rich consuming West (laughs) that are causing damage to cultural heritage for communities that are really not having this level of impact. And so I think the least we can do is throw resources at this kind of of rescue. But isn't it wonderful that that they approached the archaeologists or the academics? Isn't it wonderful that they saw the problem and thought, yes, we feel that we can... Together we can solve it. Together we can solve it. And becoming, turning something into a collaborative research project for the purposes of solving this problem and to to rescue their material. It's really, really wonderful. And that's not something, as Francis said, that's not something that we see every day. It's it's quite rare. It's good to see that all sorts of parties can start the conversation. So I mentioned earlier um, about my museum and the work um, that we do with mm-hmm. LGBT plus groups and disabled groups as well, um, largely through different campaigns that they do. And that, I, I want to talk about this just because it's a kind of contemporary collecting, as we heard with Ali before, in the way that we ask the groups, what do you want to represent you, essentially? What yeah. is it that you would like to us to own that represents your work your values your crafts whatever and we do that with quite obviously there's there's the element of campaign and things that represent the the projects that people do and the campaigns that people go on Mm. yeah that's a really good point about it being it's very targeted collecting which is interesting because obviously obviously loads of museums will have a collect 
collecting policy and then they will i mean they have to but <laughs> um, but i'm thinking more like that's more of a general kind of open call and it's not necessarily pe- people sometimes don't know that they can give things to museums because yeah. it's not very obvious and yeah. it might be that you have to be really brave and approach them but obviously with a more targeted collection policy or project then you're literally going out and asking people yeah i want your things what would you like to to represent you in the collection yeah and that's that's a really different vibe it is a different and also vibe. it's it's putting almost more value on it not yeah. that it's i mean obviously it's super valued when people come to us with their stories and their objects and mm-hmm. also amazing obviously that's what we're here for i would feel extremely flattered if someone came up to me <laughs> and went i would like to collect something that's yours that yeah. represents you in this facet yeah like, in this way uh what would you pick you know like that's that's a that's a really special thing. You're almost starting that relationship there then. Yeah, but I think it also takes, in my mind, it takes, again, this relationship with the sort of academic institution to ask those questions Mm. and to point out, say, you might think that that's just a product of your day-to-day, but it's really valuable for these reasons because often people do wonderful things, amazing things, and they don't think that a particular you know object or whatever is a, a signifier of that or is a, is a good kind of collection for that so although this has been a really interesting discussion so far obviously it only represents our experiences and our points of view and we'd really love to hear from our listeners about their experiences of working with different communities as well so get in contact with us please and um, we can share some of your interesting stories in a future episode and you can contact us the usual ways, which is usually email, Twitter, Facebook, whatever works for you. Grab one of us in the street. You know, whatever you, you think works. Um, all of our contact details are in the show notes. Um, but yeah, just get in touch. We would love to hear your stories. It'd be great. Mm. This review starts with a bit of an anecdote. I was recently invited to Paris by a friend of mine, a conservator called Emily Brown. I'd never been before and I had very little idea what I actually wanted to do in the city other than it should, of course, involve some museums. Entirely by chance, I received an email offering us an opportunity to review a new book that's coming out later this year. And that happened to be perfect. So today I'm reviewing The Littler Museums of Paris, an illustrated guide to the city's hidden gems by illustrator and journalist Emma Jacobs. It's a running press publication and it goes on sale at the end of June. This book is part guidebook and part travelogue and it takes you on a little journey around the Parisian landscape of small museums, including some better known ones like the Picasso Museum to the much, much more obscure such as the Policing Museum. It's meant for both armchair travellers and tourists and I think it generally does appeal to both of those groups. This book is meant to introduce people to places beyond the big attractions, and it does a pretty good job of that. Alongside useful information, the pages are filled with beautiful watercolour illustrations that add whimsy and joy to each entry. The book is divided into chapters based around interest. Marvels and machines, history, architecture and design, around the world, time capsules, artists and ateliers, stage and page, science and medicine and on the outskirts. Each museum is then presented with some vital information, such as address, contact details, opening times, admission price, and which metro line it's on. Invaluable. 
I also enjoy them as gone through the effort of telling you what English material is available at each museum. Tours, interpretation leaflets or audio guides. That's especially useful to me seeing as my French is very limited. I especially like that each museum has a tiny little map with it so that you can get a feel for where in the city it is visually. And that really helps me because I could get lost in a paper bag. In addition to stories and highlights of the collection, this book includes further recommendations in the form of if you like this, you might also enjoy lists and a few conversations with museum professionals, which is a really nice touch. There are also some quick itinerary suggestions at the back if you just can't make up your mind for what you want to see. The personal touches, the illustrations of objects, as well as glimpses of rooms and exteriors, which I much prefer to stock photos of what museums might look like from the outside, by the way, and the imaginative way in which each museum is talked about are really the key selling points for me in this book. I don't know, I kind of wish all guidebooks were like this, and unfortunately they're not. As you might expect, this book is accurate to current prices, and I don't know if updated versions are planned for the future or not, but if you go to Paris this year, I'd definitely consider getting a copy of this. For the record, this book did mean that I visited several museums I'd never heard of before, such as the Museum of Hunting and Nature, or the Curie Museum. I did, of course, go to a couple of the big tourist attractions as well, but I honestly enjoyed exploring these places more, and I hope to visit a few more in years to come. The book has 192 pages with full colour illustrations throughout that are beautiful, by the way, and it's set to cost £14 in the UK or $19 in America. If you're planning a trip to Paris or just enjoy reading about quirky little museums, I would definitely recommend this. Dear Jane, I'm a collections researcher and I will be curating a small exhibition next year about the connection between text and objects in archaeological museum collections. This will include inscriptions and tablets, but also archives. As part of my exhibition, I really want to highlight the different professions and disciplines that go into our collections. Do you have any examples of how I could do this beyond including an interview with a conservator, which I fully intend to do already? Perhaps some exhibitions that have been done this well previously that I could look at. Many thanks. Dear Akio A, what an interesting question and thank you very much for thinking about all the things that go behind the scenes in an exhibition and being happy to share that with the public. I think all the evidence suggests that the public really do enjoy understanding the whole process that's involved in putting together an exhibition. So your exhibition is about text and objects, and I think you could probably do some fun things with partial cleaning and partial unrevelation to do with conservation. I think it would be lovely if you are working with a conservator, for example, to um, perhaps ask them if they could partially clean or fully clean a couple of coins from a coin hoard so that you can see perhaps just as the coin arrived and then perhaps if the the, um, conservator just worked on some core details and then whether they worked on the full face of the coin. Because it's always fascinating working with numismatists what the critical bits of information are for them in terms of reading a coin. That kind of might be something that you can explore. I think there's a lot to be done here with analysis that you could have fun with, levels of interaction that you might be prepared to go with. 
So quite a lot of things can be read differently when you use different colours of lights. So there's multi multispectral imaging that is the way people talk about it. There's lots of different types of light. There's ultraviolet light, infrared light that reveals various information. And so you might be able to do something with just a couple of images which you, you Photoshop together so that you can just swipe one way or the other and you can see it as it would appear in one form of light and as it might appear in another form of light. Perhaps that's something you could do on a, a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> I think that you can do, um, you can use some case studies um, of examples where conservators' work have helped to reveal and preserve information. I think the Vindolander tablets are a great example and they get you using the different lights. And I've sent some um, links through to the C word for them to put in the show note. I've also sent a link of a cursed tablet. This is a fascinating question that perhaps people could get involved in a discussion about. If you find some secret writing, do you open it? Do you reveal it? Is it our business to be uncovering this information or is it meant to be a secret? In the same way that some religious scrolls are sometimes placed inside of objects, we could perhaps engage the public in um, some kind of public engagement, some kind of public vote about whether people's secrets from the past should be respected or whether our overwhelming curiosity to find out what they wrote can override that. The example that I've sent you links to via the C word has a very exciting Roman curse tablet turning out to be, I think, a laundry um, instruction. So I think there's lots of fun that could be done there, whether at low level interactive, at voting, at visual um, in, in visual sort of revelation and unrevelation. I think if you're going to look at all the people behind the scenes, you should definitely be picking up on, particularly with archaeological excavation, just the work, the sheer patience and care that it takes from an excavator to retrieve things like the Vindolanda tablets. In working perhaps in wet organic context, just getting those things out of the ground without damaging is an incredible skill and it would be nice to sort of look at that and understand the work that's involved in that. And of course, you also get writing things like t in tattoos as well or information. And I think the other side of things that would be interesting to to look at are the people who decode, the people who who are the linguists and the and the people who read the, the transcript and can transcribe information, such as the runes that you can find sort of translating north north inscriptions and understanding what they actually mean. And again, I've sent a link to that. So I think all the way through the process from recovery, conservation, revelation, cleaning, and then interpretation of all things that can be done and done in quite fun ways from interviews, from photographs, from video clips, but also from interactives in terms of perhaps a swiping screen so you can see things from different lights. Um, the National Museum of Scotland have got some things like that online as well. I'll see if I can find a link for that. And then also, you know, getting bigger into the more philosophical questions and perhaps having votes. I was just asking people, what do they want to reveal? A kid's interactive, you know, do you want to open this and what do you find inside? And just see how people feel. Everybody loves a bit of discovery in archaeology, don't they? I hope that's been helpful. Over and out. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. 
We crunch the numbers and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Patreon shout out. Thanks so much to our latest patron, Ruth, for joining us. Welcome. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word and you've been listening to Christina Rosaic, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jenny Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about interviews and portfolios. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. Are we still cutting out? We're doing different songs. Do 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 do. La la la.